During episodes 35 and 36, we've looked at chilling castles, horrible halls, haunted hotels, and terrifying taverns. And we're only halfway through our ghost trail of a county as scary as it is stunning. So tonight, join me as we continue our adventure through creepy County Durham. Welcome to episode 37 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkham, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we continue our epic ghost trail and ask once again just how haunted is County Durham. Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. The North of England Lead Mining Museum The North of England Lead Mining Museum, better known as Killip, dates back to 1853 when Park Level Mine opened to explore the rich veins of lead ore found at Killip. The moors and dales of the North Pennines echoed to the sound of the lead mining industry for over 50 years, until the mine ceased to operate in 1910. The miners were ill-equipped to protect themselves from the threat of injury as a result of falling objects or explosions. There were three recorded deaths in Park Level, but hundreds more as a result of anthracosis, a lung disease caused by inhaling dust. The miners called the dreaded illness the black spit, and once they began to cough and spit a dark substance, they knew death was sure to follow. Children as young as seven were employed to work long hours on the washing floor for just four pence a day, breaking up and separating the lead ore from the waste. This practice was replaced in the late 1870s when Park Level Mill was built. This mill utilised a water wheel of 12 metres in diameter 
to crush up and separate the lead ore. Park Level Mine reopened briefly during the First World War to supply the northeast with much needed lead. Restoration of Killip started in 1980 and today the North of England Lead Mining Museum is the most complete lead mining museum in Britain. The famous Killip wheel was once one of many water wheels in the area but is now the only one to survive. Visitors have access to the grounds and can also go underground into park level mine. The belief that the mine, the grounds and the surrounding woodland are haunted dates back to when it was still a working mine. The miners were convinced that ghosts walked to Killip and used to call them Tommy Knockers. Some of these ghosts were benign spirits that meant no harm, but it was commonly accepted that there were a number of evil phantoms intent on causing disruption and misery. In more recent years, staff and visitors have experienced paranormal goings-on, including footsteps and hushed voices heard inside the mine shop when there's been nobody else there but the member of staff on duty. People on tours into the mine have felt as if somebody else has been there. When they've mentioned it upon leaving the mine, other people have described the same sensation. Glimpses of a dark, shadowy figure have also been caught in the torchlight, and it is believed that the phantom haunting the mine could be that of Thomas Heslop, who died on September the 18th, 1879. He was caught inside the water wheel and torn limb from limb. Miners entering park level were horrified to find themselves walking, not through the muddy water that they would normally encounter, but blood, complete with body parts floating past them. Perhaps the most unusual occurrence of all is found in the miners' cottage. The room is made up how it would have been during the days of the working mine, complete with mannequins. There is a drafts board in the room to demonstrate the type of pastime the miners would have. The staff have found that pieces move overnight when the museum is locked up and there's nobody on site. There is a local legend of a woman who went into the woods late one night looking for her husband. She was never seen again. It's unknown where the story originated from or even what era it is believed to have taken place in. However, in the dead of night, a woman's scream has been heard coming from the heavily wooded land. I spoke to Dean Maynard, a psychic, who led a paranormal investigation at the North of England Lead Mining Museum back in 2003. He remembered it vividly, and in 2009 when I spoke with him, he told me that it was the most terrifying night of his life. What he said was this. We arrived at 9pm and saw that the little hut that was our home for the night was surrounded by woods, with no street lighting and the mine only had one road in and out. It was at this point that I realised for the one and only time in my paranormal career I had severely underestimated the North of England Lead Mining Museum. It was dark, eerie and very foreboding. The owner left us at 10pm with matches and some coal and we were all alone for the night in the middle of nowhere. The night started very quietly and at around 1.30am we went for a walk in the woods. About a mile in we stumbled across a derelict cottage that had no windows and had clearly not been occupied for some time. The only way to describe it was that it looked like a smaller version of the house at the end of the movie, The Blair Witch Project. We entered the cottage very nervously and lasted about two minutes as it had a very unnerving, we were not alone feeling to it. As we started briskly walking back, I heard a woman's voice shout, coming back from the cottage. I kept it to myself as I thought it was just my imagination it wasn't. Ten seconds later my colleague confirmed this by shouting, did you hear that woman shout? 
We quickly walk back to the miners' hut on ground level to regroup and gather our composure. However, 15 minutes later we were terrified once again as the side door suddenly began to rattle as if somebody was trying to get in. We finally left the museum at 3am as the cottage and door rattling experience had genuinely shaken us up and we were beginning to hear and see all manner of ghostly goings on all around us without being able to differentiate between our imagination and reality. I simply had to get out of there. The North of England Lead Mining Museum is still to this day the most unnerving investigation I have ever been involved with. Kirk Carrion High up on the Loonsdale Ridge, dominating the skyline for miles around, stands the Scots pine-covered tumulus of Kirk Carrion, one of Teesdale's major Bronze Age burial sites. In 1804, the mound was excavated and a small chamber was discovered, containing an urn. The urn was found to contain charred bones, and some unidentifiable dark matter. Mr C. Rain of Lonton, Lord Straithmore's bailiff, marked the location of the burial by planting the pine trees, and the urn was sent to Streamland Castle. The burial mound is believed to have been created in around 1400 BC, and the remains are thought to be those of a Brigantian chief named Karen. The Brigants were an independent self-governing tribe who had settled in the north of England during the Bronze Age. Karen is thought to have been killed in battle, and his body burned atop a funeral pyre. His ashes and burnt bones were placed inside the urn, and his tribe will have worked day and night to pack stones and earth over the urn, creating a huge mound, or tumulus. It has been said that no matter how wild the wind, there is an area within the circle of ancient trees where no wind ever blows. Kirk Carrion is also believed to be haunted by the restless spirit of Karen, lamenting the disturbance of his prehistoric resting place. Cauldron Snout Cauldron Snout is a waterfall on the upper reaches of the River Tees, situated below a dam at the east end of the Cowgreen Reservoir. Cauldron Snout is truly a breathtaking sight, the angry water rushing, bubbling and crashing along a series of dolerite steps over 600 feet long. Vertically, it is 200 feet from the first cataract to the last, meaning that Cauldron Snout is not only England's longest waterfall, but it's also the highest. The Cowgreen Reservoir was built between 1967 and 1971 to provide for the grown industrial sector of Teesside. The two mile long reservoir holds back 40 million cubic metres of water. The building of the reservoir was met with furious opposition from conservationists who feared that the building of the much needed reservoir would endanger the flora and fauna found in the upper Teesdale area including a number of rare plant species which have survived since the last ice age, such as the blue gentian and the Teesdale violet. Thankfully, the construction of the reservoir didn't cause the ecological disaster feared by many. In an effort to ensure that the remaining area was not threatened by any further development, it was declared a national nature reserve. The ghost of a Victorian farm girl is said to haunt Cauldron Snout. Her true identity is unknown, but she is known locally as the Singing Lady. She was in love with a married lead miner and was broken hearted when he ended their affair. Devastated, she threw herself to the mercy of Cauldron Snout, cracking her skull on the rocks and drowned. Her forlorn spirit is seen gliding across the water on moonlit nights. Witnesses have said that she appears to be crying, others say singing, but any noise she may be making is all but drowned out by the loud roar of the angry, fast flowing water of Cauldron Snout. 
The building of the Cow Green Reservoir may not have disturbed too much of the wildlife living in the area, but it is believed the construction did destroy the valley which was said to be home to Peg Powler, a green-haired, green-skinned hag from local folklore. In the 18th century, Peg Powler was created by worried parents, concerned about a number of children disappearing while near the River Tees in the Upper Teesdale area. This was most likely due to kidnappers, or children getting too close to the perilous banks of the Tees and falling into the water. Children were warned by their parents that if they went too close to the water's edge, Peg would rise up from beneath the murky depths. She would grab them by the ankles, pulling them under, before dragging them back to her lair and eating them alive. Indication that Peg was beneath the water's surface waiting for her next victim was said to come in the form of a green foam on the water's surface, known by the children as Peg Powler's Suds. Despite the belief that Peg Powler was little more than a myth, there have been a number of sightings of a monstrous hag fitting Peg's description. In 1754, a local man by the name of John Tallentire recorded in his diary that he had seen by the River Tees a creature of greenish complexion and utter horror. In 1767, Isaac Pennington recorded in his ship's log, Today a strange creature is sighted of the port bow. It scared all the fish away and half my men witless. In 1864, Emily Jackson recorded in her diary, I had a very strange experience today. I was attacked by a strange hag-like fish monster who came out the tees. I believe I am beginning to go mad. Raby Castle The name Raby is of Viking origin and means settlement on the boundary. In the 11th century, King Canute, the Viking King of England, Denmark and Norway, owned a mansion on the site where Raby Castle stands today. Canute handed the estate back to the Northumbrian bishops of Durham as a gesture of goodwill. The lands haven't been taken from Northumbrians in the late 9th century by Viking invaders. The land was passed into the hands of the Nevilles, an influential Norman family, and it was John, 3rd Baron Neville, who was responsible for the building of the castle in around 1360, with Bulmer Tower incorporating the only remains of Canute's mansion. John obtained a licence to crenellate in 1378, allowing him to add fortifications to the building. In 1569, 700 men gathered in the Baron's Hall to plot the infamous Rising of the North, led by two members of the Great Northern Nobility, Charles Neville, 6th Earl of Westmoreland, and Thomas Percy, 7th Earl of Northumberland. At the time, much of the North followed Catholicism, and the rebels wished to deposition Elizabeth I and replace her with her Catholic cousin, Queen Mary of Scots. The rebellion failed, and Raby Castle, along with the Neville's other estates, were seized by the Crown. Raby Castle remained in the possession of the Crown until 1626, when Sir Henry Vane the Elder, treasurer to Charles I, bought Raby Castle to be the seat of his family. 1641 saw the beginning of the Civil War which lasted a decade, and the castle was attacked by royal forces on five occasions. Raby suffered considerable damage but the castle was repaired swiftly. The castle passed down from generation to generation and a vast number of changes have taken place down the centuries, resulting in the magnificent palatial property that stands today as one of the largest inhabited castles in England. The current owner, Lord Barnard, is a direct descendant of the Vane family. Raby Castle looks every bit the archetypal haunted castle and it does not disappoint. It is reputed to be haunted by the spirits of three of Raby's previous inhabitants. The most commonly reported sighting is that of the ghost of Charles Neville, 
often seen in the Baron's Hall, re-enacting the plotting of the Rising of the North. He has also witnessed ascending the staircase which leads to the hall. Henry Vane the Younger, son of Sir Henry Vane the Elder, is another phantom who has been seen at Raby Castle by a number of terrified visitors. In life, Henry was a vociferous activist and was imprisoned in the Tower of London for high treason. He was placed on trial and sentenced to be beheaded. He was executed on Tower Hill on the 14th of June 1662. A large crowd gathered and Henry took out a small piece of paper and began to make his final speech. All attempts to interrupt him failed, so the sheriff instructed trumpeters to drown out his voice. Undaunted, he continued to make his speech until the fatal blow struck his neck and his head dropped into the basket. Henry's headless ghost is seen in the library at Raby Castle, his body seated and his head before him upon a desk, his lips moving but no sound being heard, as if he's still trying to make his final speech. The final ghost resident of Raby Castle is that of the First Lady Barnard, often known as Old Hellcat due to her explosive temper. Lord and Lady Barnard disproved strongly of their son Gilbert's fiancé and begged him not to marry her, considering the woman to be beneath him. The marriage went ahead and Gilbert's parents were furious. His father, Lord Barnard, was so angry that he tried to destroy Raby Castle, Sir Gilbert and his wife would find the castle to be of little worth when they inherited it. He stripped lead from the roof, ripped up the floors, felled trees, and even killed every single one of the deer in the park. Only a lawsuit stopped the castle being damaged further, and Lord Barnard was ordered to pay for all repairs. Lady Barnard is still angry in death with her son for his defiance, and is seen walking the halls after dark, her eyes glowing, as she knits with white-hot knitting needles. The area surrounding Raby Castle is also believed to be haunted, possibly more so than the castle itself. Mary Ann Cotton was a serial killer living in the area in the 19th century. She murdered three husbands, her lover, a friend, her own mother, and 12 of her children, making all of the deaths appear to be gastric fever. She was eventually found out and hanged at Durham County Jail on the 24th of March 1873. The ghosts of her 12 murdered children are said to play a ghoulish game of follow my leader through the fields and wooded areas around the castle. Barnard Castle Barnard Castle stands in the town for which it is named. Situated on a clifftop overlooking the River Tees, the castle dates back to the early 12th century when Guy de Balliol, who had come to England as part of William the Conqueror's invading army, built a timber castle, choosing this site due to the strategic position the castle would command, defended by the river on one side and the steep cliffs on another. In 1125, Guy's nephew, Bernard de Balliol, began work to rebuild the castle in stone and enlarge the site protecting it with a surrounding curtain wall. The castle and the town which rapidly developed around it took its name from the man who had overseen the building of the stone fortress, Bernard's Castle. In 1138, Bernard fought at the Battle of the Standard on Counton Moor, near North Allerton, in which English forces repelled a Scottish army led by King David I. Bernard died in 1155 and was succeeded by his eldest son Guy. Guy held the lands around Barnard Castle for only seven years before his death in 1162. The estate passed into the hands of his brother, Bernard de Balliol II, until his death in 1199. He left no male heir, 
and as a result the castle was passed down to his cousin, Eustace de Helicourt, who changed his name to Balliol upon his succession. In 1216, Hugh de Balliol was a close ally of King John, and helped to defend the north against a revolt from the Northumbrian barons, supported by Alexander I of Scotland. The castle was unsuccessfully besieged in July of that year, and King Alexander's brother-in-law, Eustace de Vecchi, lost his life during the siege. Whilst riding around the castle, he was hit in the forehead by a crossbow bolt, killing him instantly. Hugh de Balliol died in 1228, and his son, John de Balliol, succeeded him, going on to become arguably the most powerful member of the family. He was wed to Devorgila of Galloway, aged just 13 at the time in 1223, marrying into a noble family descended from kings of Scotland. Upon the death of her father, Alan, Lord of Galloway in 1234, the couple acquired lands and titles, becoming one of the wealthiest families in all of Britain. In order to protect his land, John callously held his wife's illegitimate brother prisoner at Barnard Castle for over 60 years, from 1235 to 1296. When John died in 1269, Devogila had his heart embalmed and placed inside a silver casket which travelled with her always. In April 1273, she founded a Cistercian Abbey near Dumfries in his memory. Devogila died in 1290 and was buried at the Abbey alongside John's heart. The monks at the Abbey renamed it Sweetheart Abbey, the name by which it is still known today in tribute to her. The couple left three sons. The youngest son, John de Balliol II, became King of Scotland in 1290, but war broke out six years later and John surrendered his throne and was taken to the Tower of London, where he was held prisoner and all of his English properties, including Barnard Castle, were seized by the Crown. The King granted the castle to guide a Beaucamp Earl of Warwick in 1307, and the estate stayed in the Beaucamp family until 1446, when Henry Beaucamp died without a male heir. It passed into the hands of his sister Anne, who had married Richard Neville, eldest son of Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, in 1436. Richard Neville gained the title of 16th Earl of Warwick and is best known in history as the Kingmaker, due to being instrumental in the deposition of two kings during the War of the Roses. Richard was defeated and killed by King Edward IV at the Battle of Barnet on the 14th of April 1471, and his widow Anne was completely overlooked at the Lordship, and her estates were handed to Anne's son-in-law, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who was to become King Richard III in 1483. Richard had great plans for improvements and expansion of Barnard Castle, but was killed at Bosworth Field in 1485 before his alterations were realised. The castle was handed back to Anne Neville, who then granted all of her estates to King Henry VII on the understanding that they would be returned to her family upon her death. This was never carried out, and Barnard Castle was held by the Crown for over a century until 1603, during which time the castle had fallen into decline and was in desperate need of repair. In 1536, Barnard Castle was besieged by rebels unhappy with the new Protestant religion. The constable of Barnard, Robert Bowes, was forced to surrender the castle due to many of his own men sympathising with the rebels and therefore being considered untrustworthy. The leader of the rebels was arrested and hanged the following year. The Rising of the North, a plot devised at nearby Raby Castle to depose Queen Elizabeth I and have her replaced by Mary, Queen of the Scots, threatened the castle in 1569. Sir George Bowes was loyal to Elizabeth and went to Barnard Castle preparing it for the inevitable attack, 
and stocking it with provisions and men. 5,000 rebels appeared at the castle on the 2nd of December 1569, and the castle was besieged for 11 days and nights. By the 12th of December, things were looking bleak for the defenders. A couple of days earlier, the outer ward had been breached in two places, leading Bowes and his men to retreat to the inner ward. The attackers had also cut off supplies of water into the castle. Due to this, over 200 of the soldiers chose to leap from the castle and run for their lives, rather than die fighting at Barnard Castle. Many of these soldiers broke their legs, arms and even their necks leaping from the castle, and were quickly disposed of by the enemy. On the 11th day, which was the 13th of December, Sir George surrendered and marched out of the castle with over 300 of his loyal soldiers. The castle was lost to the rebels, but the delay forced by Sir George and his men brought the crown time to muster the troops and the rebellion was defeated. In 1603, King James I granted the castle to the Earl of Somerset, Robert Carr. It was transferred to the Prince of Wales in 1615 and in turn sold to the City of London in 1626. Sir Henry Vane bought Barnard Castle in 1630. However, he also owned Raby Castle, which is where he spent most of his time. And as a result, he removed much of the stonework from Barnard Castle to make improvements at Raby Castle, causing further disrepair and ruin to Barnard Castle. By 1636, the land inside Barnard Castle walls was being used to grow hay. By the end of the 18th century, the castle was a hollow shell. By 1952, Lord Barnard of Raby owned the estate and placed Barnard Castle in the ownership of the Ministry of Works. Barnard Castle is now maintained and cared for by English Heritage. Barnard Castle's best known ghost is that of a woman which mediums have claimed to be named Lady Anne Day. Little is known of Lady Anne Day except that she lived during the 16th century and was murdered at the castle while relatively young. She was thrown from the castle walls into the Tees below, to her death. Her murderer's name is lost to history, but hundreds of horrified visitors to the castle have witnessed a young woman, dressed all in white, fall from the castle. Some have claimed the fall is accompanied by her scream. But just as a woman appears to hit the water, there's no splash. It's as if she just vanishes. Many visitors to the castle have experienced an uneasy feeling in the round tower, some have described it as a feeling that somebody is following them. However, as soon as they leave the tower, this feeling lifts. Visitors to the town of Barnard Castle would be advised to keep one eye on the skies above the town, as there have been a large number of UFO sightings reported over the last century here. The most extraordinary report was on the night of the 6th of June 1977. A motorcyclist saw a low-flying, saucer-shaped object glowing overhead. It stopped directly above him, and he felt that it gave off an extreme heat. It seemed to be draining power from his engine, as his motorbike spluttered to a halt and would not start. The craft then took off at high speed and he lost sight of it moments later. The Ancient Unicorn Hotel The village of Bowes is situated in the North Pennines, an area of outstanding natural beauty. It was built around the Roman fort of Lavatray, which was built in around AD 70 and later, the Norman Castle of Bowes. At the heart of the village is the ancient Unicorn Hotel, a 16th century coaching inn steeped in history. A number of famous guests have stayed at the ancient Unicorn, the most famous being Charles Dickens, who stayed at the inn in early 1838 while researching his third novel, Nicholas Nickleby. 
he had heard rumours of the cruelty that occurred in northern boarding schools. And in the form of the nearby Bowes Academy, Dickens found his inspiration for Dothboys Hall, the fictional boarding school where unwanted children were placed in the care of the wicked one-eyed schoolmaster, Wackford Squeers. Dickens spoke to locals about conditions at Bowes Academy, ran by William Shaw, and was told that Shaw was regularly fined for mistreating boys. In the local church of St Giles, he found the graves of several pupils who had died while attending Bowes Academy. Amongst them on the north side of the chancel was the grave of George Ashton Taylor, who died aged 19 in 1822. Dickens based the character of Smike on Taylor, later writing in a letter to a friend, I think his ghost put Smike into my mind on the spot. The ancient unicorn's best known ghost is that of a young lady known as Emma. In life, Emma's real name was Martha Railton, and in 1713 she fell in love with a local man called Roger Wrightson. They were both young adults in their late teens, and they were the children of rival landlords in the village. Martha's parents had the ancient unicorn known at the time as the George, and Roger's parents ran the King's Head. The Wrightsons were a wealthy family, and Roger's father, a hard old man also called Roger, expected his son to marry suitably well. Roger knew his father would disprove of his relationship as the Railtons were not quite so well off. As a result, Martha and Roger had to meet in secret, often out on the moorland. After one late meeting in particularly stormy weather, Roger came down with a serious fever. Four days later, on the last day of his illness, he asked to see his true love. His parents agreed, and Martha came to the King's Head. However, Roger's sister Hannah was horrified at the thought of this relationship and refused to allow Martha access to see Roger. As Martha headed home in floods of tears, she heard the bell toll out for his departure and screamed aloud that her heart was to burst. Moments later, she too had died. The grieving parents agreed that it had been wrong to keep Martha and Roger apart in life, so agreed that they should be together in death, having them buried in one single grave at St Giles. The grave was unmarked, but details of their deaths are held in the parish register. The tragic tale was the subject of a poem by Scottish poet David Mallet in March 1760, called The Ballad of Edwin and Emma. This has led to Martha more commonly being referred to as Emma. Despite being laid to rest with her true love, it appears that Emma has not been able to find peace. A ghost has been seen throughout the building on countless occasions. On one particular occasion, a visitor staying at the inn was struggling to sleep as a result of a party going on in the bar. He tried to ignore it, but eventually felt the need to do something about the noise. He got dressed and headed downstairs to the bar. As he headed down throughout the building, the sound of music and laughter which had been unbearably loud only a few moments earlier seemed to fade away, and he became aware of an unusual atmosphere hanging in the air. When he reached the bar, the lights were off, and there was silence. He struggled to find the light switch, and as his eyes slowly adapted to the darkness, he realised that the bar was empty, apart from one single figure standing in the middle of the room, staring directly at him. It was a young lady, dressed in a green party dress. He tried to speak to her, but got no response. His search for the light switch became more frantic, as he became unnerved, and she appeared to watch him feel his way along the wall. He quickly found the switch, and when he turned the light on, the woman vanished before his very eyes. Emma is not the only spirit that haunts the ancient unicorn. A dark-haired gentleman is often seen stood next to the fireplace. 
A boy believed to be 12 years of age is set to haunt the cellar, and a man with a beard wearing a bowler hat has been seen wandering throughout the inn. Jay Brown of Northern Ghost Investigations was part of an investigation at the Ancient Unicorn back in 2005, and he experienced something amazing that he still cannot rationalise to this day. He told me what happened to him. I was sat in the dining area of the Ancient Unicorn, with me were a few other members of NGI, one of whom was the team medium. As I stared lazily into this large mirror that dominated a nearby wall, the medium was talking aloud about what he was picking up on in this room. As he spoke, in the darkness behind where he was stood, I began to see what I can only describe as a shimmer in darkness. Nothing that immediately made me shout ghost. Just something that caught my eye. As my attention fixed more and more on this shimmer, it began to take a form, human-shaped, behind the right shoulder of the medium. The more I watched, the more the dark shape became a billowing brown cloud, with the shape and dimensions of a six-foot-tall man. I glanced once or twice over towards where the medium was stood, but nothing could be seen. It was only through the mirror that I could make out this cloud. As I watched more, the medium then began to talk about how he could sense that there was once a fire at the unicorn, and that a couple of people had died. Once he said this, the cloud just vanished. Later that night, I found out that a number of visitors in the past had witnessed strange events in this mirror. I don't know whether it was just my eyes playing tricks on me that night. The room was lit by candles which were dancing shadows around the walls of the dining room, but afterwards it did seem strange that I'd witnessed this smoky cloud behind the medium, and then in the moments afterwards, we began to talk about a fire, and the people who had died in agony that were consumed within it. Bowes Castle Bowes Castle stands on the original site of Lavatray, a fort four acres in size built by the Romans in the Flavian period to protect the roads across the Pennine Mountains. The fort was built in around AD 70 and was occupied until the 4th century. Bowes Castle was built in 1136 as an earthen timber construction by Alan the Red, Count of Brittany, who also owned nearby Richmond Castle. Bowes Castle has been involved in considerable conflict over the centuries and has seen an awful lot of bloodshed and death. It was besieged in 1173 by Scottish forces led by King William of Scotland. It was so badly damaged that King Henry II ordered that the castle should be rebuilt in stone as a strong defensive castle designed to withstand constant Scottish raids on the north of England. This work was carried out between 1173 and 1187. The stone keep was built with three levels, surrounded by a rectangular moat. Bowes was built with no curtain wall, so it is likely that it was used as a garrison post, more than a residential castle. Between 1314 and 1322, Northern England was devastated by the Scots, and Bowes Castle was reported to be in ruins by 1325. During the 17th century, much of the remaining stone at the castle was stripped away for use in other buildings in the area. The present ruins of the castle keep are 53 feet high, and it is possible to climb up some of the inside of the keep due to part of a staircase remaining. By the end of the 4th century, the Roman occupation in Britain was coming to an end. The Roman garrison stationed at Lavatray raided the local village and stole all of their valuables, gold in particular. The furious locals retaliated and launched an attack on the fort, and despite putting up a brave fight, the garrison was quickly defeated and the Romans mercilessly slaughtered. However, the Romans had already hid the treasure, and with not a single Roman surviving, the gold has never been recovered. On the anniversary of the massacre, 
The ghosts of the murdered Roman garrison are said to appear at Bow's Castle to ritually bury their stolen gold and treasure. However, those who see these spirits are said to die in mysterious circumstances before they can share the location of the buried gold. Visitors to Bow's Castle have often reported a feeling of panic and fear well within the keep, often accompanied by the sensation of somebody standing directly behind them. Upon turning around, there is no one there. Eggleston Abbey Eggleston Abbey is a 12th century abbey standing on the borders of Yorkshire and County Durham. The ruined remains are those of the Abbey Church and its adjoining cloister. The abbey was founded in 1195 by the pre-monster Tenstrians, who wore white habits and were commonly referred to as the White Canons. Around 100 years after the founding of Eggleston Abbey, the church was expanded and rebuilt, which was common with many monasteries of the time and it's this later church that stands today. The centre of the church, known as the Crossing, has virtually disappeared apart from one wall on the south transept dating from around 1275. The standing walls are all of a good height, and the foundations of the walls which have long since vanished are still visible, allowing visitors to visualise the size and magnificence of the working abbey. The central area of the church has a number of grave slabs of canons long deceased. The names and inscriptions of which are mostly illegible due to the age and the harsh weather conditions that the Abbey regularly suffers because of the exposed position that it holds. There is also an elaborately sculptured tomb chest, which was for Sir Ralph Bowes, who died in 1512. Eggleston Abbey was always a poor abbey, and struggled to maintain the required 12 canons. The financial hardship was worsened by raids from Scottish invaders, and disputes throughout the Middle Ages. Many costly repairs were required during this period of the Abbey's history. In 1536, Henry VIII began to close down all Roman Catholic abbeys, monasteries and convents across England in a bid to reduce the church's power. This was known as the Dissolution of the Monasteries. In 1540, Eggleston Abbey was dissolved. And in 1548, the lands were granted by the King to Robert Strelly and his wife. Strelly set about converting some of the buildings into a grand private house and he demolished the church tower because he felt it spoilt the view from his new home. Robert Strelly died in January 1554 and the site proceeded to pass through many different hands over the years that followed and the building has suffered due to so many alterations. It was occupied until 1770 when the Morritt family who had purchased Rokeby Hall the previous year bought the abbey and made use of the remains as an ornamental focus point of their estate. During the 19th century, much of the abbey was pulled down and the stone reused elsewhere, including paving the stable yard at Rogerby Hall. Stonework was still being reclaimed from Eggleston Abbey as recently as 1905. The site is now a scheduled ancient monument and is maintained by English heritage. In the 1300s, a novice monk named Brother Martin lived happily at Eggleston Abbey. The monks were allowed to leave the abbey and go for walks or go fishing in the nearby river. One moonlit evening, the monk decided to go for a walk along the riverside. He met a young girl who tried to talk to Martin but he turned and fled from the young lady so as not to break his vows. For a short while following this Martin never ventured from the abbey but he couldn't get the young girl's smile and piercing eyes out of his mind. Eventually the temptation proved too much for him and he went for a stroll along the Tees, the same time and the same route as he had previously taken in the hope of maybe seeing her again. Sure enough, he met the girl again, but this time he did talk. He apologised for his previous behaviour, and they talked and laughed for hours, until it became dark, 
they promised to meet again the next evening. They met the next evening, and the evening after that, and the one after that, and eventually they became lovers. They met every night at their secret place under the trees next to the river. Eventually, Martin had a feeling of guilt whenever he wasn't with her. Another monk was getting worried by Martin's unusual behaviour and his pale complexion. He decided to go to see Martin one night, and as he approached Martin's cell, he heard weeping. He entered the cell and asked Martin what was wrong. Martin confessed his misdeeds, and was advised to stop these meetings at once. From that moment on, he should not leave the abbey grounds, and he should put the girl from his mind. For several weeks Martin remained in his cell, sobbing and praying for forgiveness for his sins. One stormy evening, it all became too much for the monk. He ran from his cell out towards a secret place in hope of seeing the girl. Sure enough she was there waiting for him, as she had done every night since their last meeting. She was overcome by joy when she saw him approaching, but he was sweating and he was pale and breathless. She asked if he was feeling his self, if he had been ill. She asked why he looked at her in such an intense manner. He suddenly lost it. He grabbed her and shouted at her, accusing her of being evil, sent from the devil to tempt him. He lashed out at her, screaming in rage. She tried to run, terrified that the man that she loved had gone mad. He caught her and wrestled her to the ground. She was screaming for help, but nobody was around. He told her to be quiet. Her screams continued. His hands found her throat, and soon enough she was silent. He had killed her. The teas were in full flow as the rain came down and the wind roared. Sobbing Martin dragged her lifeless body to the water's edge and threw her in. For a minute or two, she floated on the water's surface, and then the rush of water took her body under and away forever. Wet shaken and mumbling hysterically, the monk staggered back up to the abbey. His absence from praying the following morning didn't go unnoticed, and the monks found Martin in his cell, delirious with fever and gravely ill. His habit was torn, soaked through and covered in leaves and grass. The monks couldn't understand how he was in this condition. With their care, Martin recovered within a week, but he would not talk. No matter how often the monks tried to converse with Martin, he would not utter one word. One evening, there was a great storm, illuminating the sky, thunder crashing loudly above the abbey. Martin clambered from his bed, and in a trance-like state he left the abbey towards the Tees one last time. He headed to their secret place. As the rain came down and the sky lit up with a constant flash of lightning, he prayed to God for forgiveness. Then he snapped. He ran down the steep slope and threw himself with a great scream into the merciless waters below. This may seem like a story passed down from generation to generation of locals in the area, but this doesn't explain the regular sighting of a ghostly monk seen moving around the ruins or sometimes rushing down from the abbey to the Tees just as dusk approaches. When the river is in flood, a monk and a ghostly young girl are often seen drifting just above the water. Much more often, however, you can hear his screams of agony coming from the steep banks of the Tees. In August 2009, Jonathan Horner of Yarm spent a night at Eggleston Abbey with a friend, in the hope of experiencing something supernatural. He told me what happened. I myself visited Eggleston Abbey whilst on a camping trip. Some locals had turned a friend and I that the abbey was haunted, so we decided to pay a visit to the abbey late one night to investigate. We were stood in the ruins at around midnight, in the only part of the abbey with a roof, the novices' room. 
Whilst there, my friend was staring at something, and he appeared to be transfixed. I spoke to him, but he didn't answer. I touched his shoulder, and he jumped. He seemed shaken, and he explained that he had just seen what looked like a young man and lady sat perched on part of the ruin, just outside of the novice's room. They didn't move in the time he watched them. Then they just seemed to fade away before his eyes. Shortly after this, he wanted to leave. When I got back from my camping trip, I did some research into Eggleston Abbey's ghosts. I found the story of Brother Martin who had a secret love affair with a girl, and he still haunts the grounds and the tees. My friend saw what he believed to be a young man and a young lady. Brother Martin and his lover reunited in death, perhaps. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on the Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you'll see photos galore relating to our ghost trail of County Durham. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions, and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start for as little as £1. If you'd like to get early access to episodes, as well as access to exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened, you can gain access right now for less than the price of a pint. There's eight episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that, but you can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, as well as join me on an actual investigation via live stream and talk to me throughout. You'll see what I see, and you'll hear what I hear. Perhaps we'll see a ghost. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast episode description and over on the website. I'm running a competition where two winners can win a signed copy of one of my new books. There is a copy of Illustrated Tales of Northumberland, which was released in February, and a copy of Paranormal Northumberland, which was released in May. In July, I will be walking 28 miles to raise money for Cancer Research UK in memory of my dear friend John, who lost his battle in 2017, aged only 34. To enter the competition, as well as supporting the charity, if you can afford to do so, please consider heading over to justgiven.com forward slash page, P-A-G-E, forward slash walk for John 2023. And that's the number four. Justgiven.com forward slash page, forward slash walk for John 2023. The link is in the podcast episode description. And sponsor me whatever you can afford. Every penny counts. Then just drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com and I'll pop your name in the hat. I'll draw the two lucky winners at the end of July, and then I'll ship the books out anywhere in the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we'll take on the final leg of our journey through Haunted County Durham. We'll look at a museum haunted by a brown lady, a friendly phantom dog, a creepy cleaner, 
and the spirit of a soldier killed in World War I. We'll also look at a shopping centre where ghostly music is heard echoing throughout the empty building after closing time and ghosts of children are glimpsed in the reflection of mirrors in changing rooms. And we look at an old train station which is the haunt of a night watchman and his faithful guard dog. But there's more, so much more. Let's find out together next week when we conclude our ghost trail of County Durham. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? <laughs>